0: They say patience is a virtue, but I can wait as long to as do for a change.
1: Call me insane, but that's my AA. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Untelevised, the podcast. Um, We have made it through to episode 15, um, which is another nice sort of round figure that at least makes us feel like we've accomplished something. Um, If you are new to us, um, my name is Mona and with me is Fazeo.
2: Welcome, everyone. This is the podcast where we look at all things social change and we do that by looking at the way that our society is now, and the way we might want it to be, and what we can all do to pay our part in changing it. So
1: this week, what are we discussing, Mona? This week, we're discussing housing. And again, you know, I I think back to when we sort of launched Untelevised as a platform and how one of the ideas that we kept bouncing around between us was, um, you know, a platform that would look at the way in which... um, I don't know, grassroots organizations or normal people or basically people outside of kind of statutory services were picking up on, you know, vital and crucial services that society needs. And we always discussed how one of those like pillars in a way or one of those kind of basics of life is housing and actually how even that is something that's, as we'll find out today, you know, is is not a given even here in the UK.
2: Yeah, I think housing is. This is going to be a really, 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 really interesting episode because housing is one of the cornerstones of what everyone needs, isn't it? Shelter, like one of the basic things that everyone needs. And I think the interesting thing about housing as well is how linked it is to everything else within our well being. Um, and I think if any time is good to talk about this, this is, this is as good as anywhere. We've been confined to mm. our housing, our houses um, for such an extended amount of time. And I think this past year um between 2020 and 2021 has really shown us how different our experience of the world might be depending on what type of housing we're in and and what access to shelter we have um so yeah i think i think we're going to
1: to learn a lot this week <laughs> yeah and, um, to delve into a lot well i guess in in speaking of which maybe we should get stuck in with the learning yeah yeah
2: let's let's go to the learn Okay, so with housing, I think one of the things we should start with and something that's really important is that housing's not sort of like a fluffy thing that we just feel that we should have. It's actually entrenched in our human rights, universal human rights. The right to adequate housing... And they specify that as the right to live somewhere in security, peace and dignity is something that all of the countries that are signed up to the UN human rights have dedicated themselves to committing to. Um, so I don't know about you, Mona, but I was interested to, to see the way they've phrased that security, peace and dignity um, and what that might mean. And I guess we can explore that a bit more um, throughout the episode. But i um, I saw a document on their website, and it 's interesting they specified a lot of different things and they said one of the most common misconceptions associated with this right to housing is that it requires the state to build housing for the entire population and they actually said no that 's not the case and um, while some governments do decide that in order to make sure that there is adequate housing they 'll build some degree of housing construction, um, the right to housing as interest the human rights does not oblige governments to do this rather it's more about making sure that there's measures in place to prevent homelessness so this could be stuff like um, measures against eviction um, discrimination ensuring that there's security of tenure um, and things like that uh And also another thing to stipulate is that the right to housing is broader than just the right to own property. So you don't have to own the housing you're in. Um, It's more about ensuring that everyone has a safe and secure place to live. And there are a lot of different ways and forms that you can have adequate housing without owning your property. So that could be stuff like rental accommodation, cooperative housing, which is going to be something we're going to have a look at today. Emergency housing, informal housing, owner occupation. There's lots of different ways that you can... um, be considered to have adequate housing without owning the housing that you live in. And another thing that I think is really important to think and talk about is that the access to housing, like I said a minute ago, is a precondition for the enjoyment of so many other of our human rights. So things like the rights to work, health, social security, the right to vote, the right to education. A lot of these things are linked to having housing, having an address. So for example, as we keep saying, um, there's some elections coming up and in order to vote in an election, you need to have an address. So yeah, the right to housing is linked to so many other of our rights as humans and our rights as people who want to participate in society.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, um, as Fizeo said, so we found out that governments are not obliged um, to build housing for all its citizens, but we do have other other types of measures in place in a welfare state um, to at least, I guess, help us towards this right to housing. So people may hear terms like social housing, council housing, etc. So social housing is basically where Rents of that housing are linked to local incomes. So the idea is that that is the most kind of affordable housing that you'll be able to get. So rents in social homes are significantly lower than private rents, where somebody just rents directly off of a landlord or whatever, as you know, as two members of this, you know, market that we're in, capitalist market that we're in. And there will be like limits set by governments on how high those rents can go. Um, And that means that, for example, even if an area becomes trendy and more expensive, if there's social housing within that area, then those rents would still remain like limited in how much they could rise. Whereas a private landlord could obviously just make the rent, whatever somebody was willing to pay for it. Um, Now, then we hear about council housing. um, And so council housing, as as this term suggests, is housing that the council owns, that is owned by the local authority, and that the local authority can therefore distribute to people according to need. Um, And so they will have like point systems, for example, where they look at how high the need is for a particular person, family, etc. And whether they qualify for that council housing. So, you know, um, priority might be given to families with young children. It might be given to sick people, disabled people, um, etc. Versus maybe a single adult or a person who has a job versus maybe a person who doesn't have a job and and so on. Um, Council housing is a form of social housing but it is when it's owned and managed by the council, whereas other types of social housing might be run by even like a charity um, that that administers it or what we call a housing association who are sort of supposed to be not-for-profit organizations that own housing and administer it and look after the housing and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So those are just some of the types of housing. And then Fizeo briefly mentioned also kind of like temporary accommodation. So that is, as it explains or suggests, Um, something that should be temporary. So maybe while people are waiting on a list for council housing or social housing, if they really were about to be homeless or then they might be put into even something like a hostel... um, Like I don't know a like a bed and breakfast or something, but the cost of that would get still get covered by their local authority, for example, if they were considered like high need and in emergency, for example. So it's a type of homelessness in the sense that you don't have a permanent place to live, but some kind of emergency measured are put in place. Um, At the end of June of 2020, so the June just gone it was estimated that um, over 250,000 sort of homeless people were living in temporary accommodation um, in England. Um, Now, that's the highest it's been since 2006. So imagine that, and that was during COVID, during lockdown, where, as Fizeo said, we were confined to housing if we had it.
2: Yeah, and I think I think one of the interesting things about temporary accommodation is, you've experienced this quite a lot in your work with um, unaccompanied minors and, and refugees, is that sometimes it can be not so temporary, and they can be there for years and years and years, and those homelessness stats are shocking, but again, we know that there's a lot of hidden homeless people that are sleeping on other people's sofas
1: and stuff like that. So they're not counted towards those statistics. So, yeah, to... I mean, people might literally, I think maybe assume that homelessness means the people you literally see sleeping on the street. But yeah, mm. absolutely. If you don't have a permanent address and you're being bounced around and stuff, in a, you know, from one hostel to another and et cetera, then yeah, you are, you are homeless. You know, you don't have, you know, if we were to go back to living in peace and security and dignity, you definitely don't have that. But again, those are mm. deliberately vague terms, I think. (laughs) yeah exactly um and just to add a little bit more context
2: to everything we've said um the uk where we're recording this podcast from has the highest average rent in the whole of europe and london more specifically where we're both sat right now (laughs) retains its position as the most expensive city to rent in europe and the fourth most expensive city in the whole entire world so just to give some more context to the people that we're going to speak to today we're sitting in the fourth most expensive city in the world the most expensive in Europe and the Western world.
1: Yeah, so we found a couple of people um, this week who in different ways are trying to address a lot of the issues that we just mentioned and actually following on from our episodes on democracy and also on democratic workplaces. What we're looking at today is how democracy, again, as a concept might be used and employed here, either in fighting for your rights to housing or even how you manage a place of housing the same way that we were looking last week at how you might use democracy to manage a workplace. so, as we are um, this week exploring how democracy can be applied to the issue of housing, um, particularly in, in fighting for our right to housing, I'm really excited this week to have spoken to Amina from the London Renters Union, um, who are a campaigning union for renters, for anybody who doesn't own their own house and have the final say over their own home. So, people living in temporary accommodation, private rented accommodation, social housing, who are homeless etc. London Renters Union have had a really strong track record of successful stories of how coming together using democratic tools can actually lead to um, winning better rights for renters, like holding landlords to account, um, actually getting, you know, influencing policy around housing in London in this instance, because that's where they operate. So they have over 4,500 members who are renting across um, London. And actually, just for some context, there are 2.66 million landlords in the UK. um, And 63% of households in the UK are sort of lived in by homeowners versus people who don't own their own house. But so that does mean there is a lot of renters in the UK. Um, Amina is an organizer for them and as well as a musician, singing teacher, community activist. Um, she's part of something called the Nawi Collective Choir who come to, you know, who use music and singing to for fundraisers and social justice events. Um, she was in, involved in Take Back the City group and is an avid um grassroots campaigner and ally of pretty much any social justice cause that you can think of?
3: The idea is that this is, this is a, a democratic organisation where renters can organise and push back against uh, the, the violence of the housing system as it operates in the city. It's, it's a really vicious housing system. So we, we, we sort of fight uh, for each other. So if someone's got a housing issue, we'll work out what, collect, what we can do collectively um, to, to sort of improve that person's housing conditions, um, you know, hold the landlord to account, um, and to also push for systemic change because it's, it's not enough to change one person's uh, housing. We need system change.
1: So um, we explored unions in a previous episode we did on workers rights, where we heard that people could unionize within a workplace or potentially unionize if they have the same type of job, but possibly across various Mm. like workplaces. So you're saying that renters all across London can join your union. And then there is a sort of, you know, um, I guess a greater power in numbers, um mm-hmm. but you might still use that power to, to hold one landlord to account, for example. um it's not like people have to live in the same building or you know anything like that
3: no we have we have um also been organizing with um yeah blocks blocks of renters as well um people trying to get their neighbors um involved to stand up for their rights as well when they've got common uh issues of disrepair uh for example but uh no we've we've had quite a few uh cases where it's sort of one renter who who wants to get the repairs done or f- get their deposit back or whatever and 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 we've collectivized around that so yeah it it can it's really difficult because renters are so atomized across the city it's different from organizing in a workplace in that sense i feel like there's a big amount to climb and also um workers have certain right the right to unionize so that's that's another thing as well so yeah there are there are all kinds of obstacles but you know three years on we've won a lot of um better housing conditions people but also changed like policies within banks as well in regards to buy to let mortgages and things like that so yeah and and we've obviously been more recently pushing back against uh uh, that the, the government wanting to lift the eviction ban during a pandemic, you know. So yeah, we've proved that that we we are more powerful in in
1: numbers. So how did it originate? Like how, did, as you say, you know, renters are atomized. It's really difficult to collect people together. Like you know, what does somebody have an idea and start with just a couple of renters? Like how did you come about the origins of it? Uh, it's probably two or
3: three years before we started to organize, uh, where, where I live in Newham in 2018. So yeah, the, the couple of years before that, there were a group of, um, activists, uh, from different housing, housing groups and social justice groups that included Radical Housing Network, Take Back the City, which I was a part of, um, look. Uh, generation rent um hackney digs as well uh rent strike who were organizing in universities um and the people's empowerment alliance for custom house which is peach which is also based in newham so quite a few of those groups do really grassroots organizing but the the people that were are doing that work we're kind of like we need something bigger we need something that has a membership and 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 enables us to unite across the city and it needs it needs democratic processes so that renters can really have the autonomy and 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 can move forward as one and create demands um and decide how they're going to fight for them so that's where the idea came from: is to is to sort of have something that enable, that can be mass, unmass, so it can win the, the housing system changes that we needed because that's really difficult when you're you're fighting small fires across the city.
1: So Mina, you said um, that this union is a democratic structure, um, and um, we literally a kind of this episode follows on from. Um, a couple of episodes we did recently—one where we defined democracy in its as a kind of you know political system and as a societal concept—and then we last um, episode spoke with democratic sort of workplace models like workers' co-ops or employee-owned businesses and so on. Um, so in this con- context, like how would you define democracy? I mean, either. How do you see it as a, as a broad social construct that you're now kind of bringing down into a micro level or just how does it work within this union setting like democracy?
3: Yeah, I think that's a huge, a huge question. What is democracy and people answer it in so many different ways <laughs> and um, I'm really proud to be part of um, a union that is trying really hard to ensure that we do have like renters have a voice and not in a tokenistic way but as in a real the power like if you have if you have a functioning democracy then i guess you know you and i will feel like we have the power to to make change happen but so much of our society makes us feel powerless right so to to have a union that is at least attempting to like have some structures whereby we can have honest conversations um, in a caring way about like how we want to do stuff together and how we think it's how we can um, interact with the state and you know uh, how we can smash down the systems that are oppressing millions of people in this country, but also across the world. It's like, incredible so the way the way in which we do that in the union is uh we have branches so we have local like my once in newham and latent stone branch um and we have monthly meetings and it's there that we make decisions about what campaigns we're doing what our strategy should be um and this is led by those with the experience obviously and um I think part of democracy and a wider thing, like is like the outreach work that we do in communities, because a lot of people sort of, like I said, like feel really powerless around their situations. so it's like sort of reaching out within our communities and saying, "Hey, like this is what we do, what what's going on for you? How do you think it should change? And you know, saying to people, "You have that agency." And especially within this, you know, this union. And you, you can decide how you want it to, to change. So, yeah, we've got our branches that do that kind of work. We've got our working groups, uh, which are based around sort of trainings and education and fundraising and member solidarity, which is huge. Like that's, those are all the housing issues that come up. And we collectively decide in those spaces with consensus decision-making, how, like if we want, if we think it's a good idea to do, to, to, to like work on someone's housing issue, like what is, there, what is there for us to gain? What point does it make about the housing system? How are we gonna, how, how does this member wanna speak about their housing issue in public? This is all democracy
1: to me. You mentioned consensus decision-making, do you mm-hmm. think for anyone who hasn't heard that term, you could maybe just explain what consensus decision-making is? I, yeah. I guess perhaps a bit as a, not with your yeah, as a little bit of like a counter way of working to just straight up democracy as we know it.
3: Within consensus decision-making, you're trying to get to a, a point where everybody is happy with the decision that is being proposed. Generally, it's like you're trying to edit the proposal as you go along, hearing the issues that people are seeing with the proposal and getting people to to, to, to go back and forth a little bit so that people understand people's concerns, which is really important.
1: I think that's um, and that's actually really interesting, and I think actually we might um, share as part of the resources for this podcast. Like some, I think there is quite a lot of guidelines around how people can use consensus decision making in groups and organisations. Because we tried it um, at May Project as well for our meetings, and we're like literally just five, six people. But it's this idea that it's not like if four of you vote yes and two of you vote no, the two people who voted no just have to be miserable, right? You kind of sit yeah. and go, why have you voted no? is there some things we can tweak to make it a yes vote, right? As opposed to just you've been trumped, that's democracy still, but you've been trumped, right? So yeah. I guess yeah. with our recent Brexit vote, that might have meant, well, why are so many people still saying remain, even if leave is just about winning? Is there some things we could do to make mm-hmm. them happy too, right? That that would kind Absolutely. of be perhaps the way that it would move forward. Um, Absolutely. Um, so I guess... Um, I mean, I mean, you've explained a little bit, I guess, about the, the activities then, so because that was interesting to me, like if you have 4,000 members, how you decide what things to take forward and which things you mm. don't take forward, I guess, right? Mm. So is it partly that you might look at it and go, okay, this month we've had way more people raise something about rat infestations than anything else, so let's take that forward, or you know and, and is that at branch level i guess it's not london wide level is it that you kind of do that unless something is a london wide maybe policy you want to challenge you know like how how does your day-to-day role as one of the maybe organizers work and how you're pushing these things forward
3: we have an annual all members assembly so that's where all members can join and and decide what it wants to change about our constitution or what uh, sort of campaign uh, focuses that we want for the next year. Um, And also to celebrate like what we've managed to achieve which is so important as well. We work really hard. Um, So it's at these all member assemblies where working groups and branches can take proposals for changes or for new things that we can do and sometimes things are really controversial or like there's a little bit more um sort of disagreement around them and then something things are really like easy to pass over like yeah obviously so we have we have demands uh that we've collectively agreed at the all-member assembly things like we want an end to Uh, DSS discrimination you know discrimination against people and housing benefits there's a whole heap of things that have been decided that came out of the all-member assemblies that were informed by branches and and working groups so it's really like my job within this is to get people actively engaging with these discussions and getting people to yeah, I think, you know what? I'm going to go on my Saturday and go and speak to loads of renters on the street, um, to let them know what we're doing, but also to listen to what housing issues are really prevalent in our area and to root ourselves in the community, or I'm going to link up with this organization because actually they, they're speaking to loads of renters who are, who also need the union and who actually we need as well, you know? Um, so on a day-to-day, yeah, it's me supporting people to be able to participate, I guess,
1: and to organise. I mean, you you mentioned in the beginning um, that this is about, like, that we're dealing with, I think you said, a violent, a vicious housing system. You know, they're, they're strong words. They're words people may not hear every day when we talk about housing. Um, and I think in maybe societies like the UK that, again, people perceive as being... Um, developed um, as being democratic, um, as having certain level of welfare states, et cetera, et cetera. People don't, maybe maybe people just assume housing is a given, right? And that mm. it's not something we have to fight for. But what do you see as being the kind of main injustices, like the the battles when you say vicious and violent, like what do you, what do you mean?
3: Mm. Within the community that I, I live in over the last sort of 10 years, seen a huge change because uh, once the Olympics came to Stratford, you know, boy, the, the, the rents skyrocketed um, and, it, and it's led to a lot of people being placed into temporary accommodation. So I think before the pandemic, there were 14,500 people in temporary accommodation within just Newham. And Newham is the worst in the country. Like it's got the highest number of uh, people in temporary accommodation. And it's like, oh, but people have a home. Well, it doesn't. I wouldn't call some of these places homes. Do you know what I'm saying? Because they're not. They're not habitable. Often the the conditions are really awful. And what really angers me, I guess, is the Is the amount of money that is being made out of the homelessness crisis within within this country? Because landlords have uh, are given an incentive to rent out their property, so they'll get anything between three and ten grand from the council before they've even received rent, and the majority, sometimes yeah, most of the time, it'll be housing benefit, so public money going into their pockets and to provide this, this standards um, of accommodation with often with infestation for mice, often with um, leaks. Uh, I, I saw, did you see there was um, a news item on this um, maybe a couple of weeks ago with um, a woman that was with her children in Croydon and Croydon council had um, housed them in this awful, awful, awful mold damp, moldy damp flat and she spoke out in the news about it. And then within a few days, they moved her to somewhere, somewhere better. And that's what we see a lot of like people just people are, people are raising their voices to the council saying, I can't live here. This is not a condition for a a good condition for my child. Uh, My children can't breathe, like literally their asthma is getting worse and worse. And these are, this is a common thing that we've seen in our branch and it's absolutely disgusting. Um, but what, what makes me feel hopeful is that every time we take action, uh, we've, we've won around temporary accommodation so far. And we're talking more with the council about like, what policies do you need to put in place? Or like, you know starting to question around accountability because often what will happen is the council will pass it to the letting agent or the landlord and and vice versa also the contracts often don't have eviction uh, like you don't have the normal rights that a private renter would have around eviction so they can evict you within 24 hours or seven days like this kind of thing and it's very dehumanizing to live like that and it's not very temporary (laughs) is what we find it's like three years five years ten years people can be living in this situation but you're still with the precarity and the enormous expense of a private a private letting
1: that is really awful yeah well so I mean that kind of Leads me a bit onto, you know, you mentioned earlier getting rid of landlords and and I think, you know, in the current system that we're in, <laughs> um, again, we've, we've, in this podcast, we've explored capitalism as a concept and then we've started exploring alternatives and we did an epi- episode on socialism as, as an alternative and um, in that episode our guest kind of said, you know, socialism to me is not just these kind of slightly milder, softer social reform things that we're seeing mm-hmm. more and more of, like to me it doesn't mean reducing inequalities, it kind of means eradicating a class system and eradicating you know um upper classes and lower classes and so on you know landowners and people who don't have land and, and all the rest of it like all yeah. those divisions so I mean I guess we can potentially all get imaginative and think about how housing might look in a society like that but like with where we're at now um is it still for you about getting rid of landlords like if we do still live in a system where people can buy property and people can buy land and so on like what would LRU kind of think would be a tangible step right like is it that all housing is state-owned for example or is it you know like is it wrong to is it just simply wrong to be a landlord or is it wrong to be a bad and mean landlord you know Mm -hmm. like like do you guys have kind of a stand on that as a union
3: yeah I think basically for as long as landlordism exists then people can't be free because it's it's an, exploit- it's an exploitative uh, thing to say that a basic right should be made a profit out of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. Like if we're if we're trying to progress, then get rid of landlordism. Is what we're saying as a concept. And you know, when I'm thinking about this, I think to my ancestors because honestly, like, so I'm half Kenyan, and it's only within recent, more recent times, you know, okay, there was colonialism, um, my family were shifted off their land, um, to put it nicely, um, and, and then what happened to, yeah, like, my, my tribe, I guess, um, Kikuyu. the Kikuyu tribe is that they were made to pay rent on on the huts that they lived in um and that's the beginning of renting in in kenya because before that that before the british did that then there wasn't that didn't exist because people just um yeah they used the land they 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 cherished the land as a community and as a collective do you know what i mean like a collective um in a collectivist way, it was like, okay, this is my portion. And I'm going to take care of that. Um, And they're big on agriculture and that's how, that's how they live and still live. Um, But, you know, it's like, it's there's a, there's a huge issue of feudalism and, and sort of a landlord class in this country who own huge, swathes of land that we don't have access to, but we need, we need access to that. We need access to grow stuff. You know, it's not only housing. I think it's just like so many things we could be doing that that would be better if we could access that land. Um, when it comes to London, you know, the, the amount of people, you know, when I was talking about temporary accommodation, before and people being told by councils if you can't afford to live here then move like this will continue if we continue to have landlordism and and if housing can be made a profit out of so for me it's like i don't see that as a radical because people people say oh these radical people are so um those You know, people just so yeah just you're, you're just so like pie in the sky or you're no I'm just thinking realistically like if you want people to be able to live and to be able to thrive not just survive then we need the system to be to be uh, liberatory like we need it to be like we need to strive towards freedom so that's why I get really um Angry, like uh, you're saying, I get angry a lot, but I get really angry at like um, NGOs and and charities sometimes because they don't want to go down that route and they want to protect. It's very political, but it, it's almost like they're they're p- protecting a right to exist as an organisation where I don't want us to have to exist. I don't want my job to have to exist. Uh, but for as long as landlordism does exist, I think that I will need to have, (laughs) uh, you know, someone will, will need to organize renters. Like people rent, these rent, renters are not coming together because they enjoy having to fight for X, Y, Z. Like if we didn't have to fight for it,
1: then that would be way better. Right. Yeah. No, you'd be um, (laughs) singing along in your choir or painting a painting or something instead. No, absolutely. Um, Okay. Um, so, mean, on that fight um, and the need to organize and the need to fight, um, and, you know, we've, this has, you know, we've, again, this episode follows on from kind of exploring democracy. Um, these are acts that are crucial in a democracy, right? And, you know, you've yeah. seen, you talked about accountability. Um, we've seen literally in the last few weeks you know like extreme threats to even the limited democratic rights that we already have um bans mm. on protesting and so on this is literally the almost like what you guys live off <laughs> yeah um, do you want to maybe just talk a bit about the kind of well why those maybe why those rights are important how you guys used them and, and i guess maybe just some success stories i mean you've hinted already at them but proving showing people that it why it's important and why it works, you know, to to, yeah. to use these rights and to mobilise around um, holding people to account in society. Yeah. yeah,
3: I mean, the police crime sentencing and court bill is is it's a scary bit of legislation. It's worrying because this is like action is oxygen, right? Honestly, action is the oxygen. When we come together and we show we show our collective might, we take direct action outside a landlord's uh, a, a landlord's um, gaff or like whatever. We are we're able to create the change, like boom. Like honestly, there are there are situations where our members have had disrepair issues. They've been fighting to, to get done for like years we turn up, we hand out a few leaflets outside. We have our banner, a couple of us go inside. They're like, what the hell is going on? We're like, well, you need to do X, Y, Z, and then we'll go away. And they do it within a few hours of being there. So, yeah, like, and I think, I think it's really, it is really linked like to, to how oppression, different kinds of oppression relate with, the housing system, because it is those who are more marginalized, who stand the most to gain from taking this kind of action. And it's, and it's by getting, or by encouraging those who are more marginalized to take a lead that we will see liberation through. So that's why I see this as a really, really big threat because it's really important that we're say like people aren't going to be threatened with deportation or with arrest when they're already so precarious like like over the last year or so uh, the number of people who have been unable to pay their rent has like you know really skyrocketed Um, so I think about 800,000 people across the country can't pay their rent fully Um, so what we're looking at is an eviction crisis. And so one of the ways in which we're fighting against that as a union is by resisting evictions physically, uh, by being on the doorstep and preventing the bailiffs or the police from, from coming in. So a bill like this would really threaten our ability to keep people in their homes at a time where, yeah. I mean, there's such huge precarity for so many people, but especially in my community, people with no recourse to public funds, you know? Um, uh, Migrants who are undocumented and have lost some of that that work that uh, existed prior to the pandemic. So I'm really trying to encourage people to fight back against this you know, and obviously Sisters Uncut has been doing an incredible, an incredible job um, of of leading on the front lines as well. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, okay. I mean, I, I mean, I could, I could. Oh, There's just, i I've, you know, I could, I could ask you sort of things all day, and oh, you know, and this battle you won, and that battle you won, and stuff. And I think, you know, obviously we, we're we're going to refer people to you guys and and to all of your Um, you know, to your materials and to your site and so on, so that they can actually see for themselves. So I guess um, practically if anybody either wants to join London Renters' Union or they might want to set up, you know, a Renters' Union in a city of their own, how might they do that?
3: Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, so if if they want to sign up to London Renters' Union, uh, then please go on the website. It's londonrentersunion.org slash join. And they can they can sign up for between four pounds and ten pounds a month. Um, money is also part of mm. our power. Do you know what I mean like the The people that we're fighting have a a lot money. of money yeah right so we we also need to be well uh, resourced um, so that's part of our collective power. Um, if you're unwaged though, you can sign up for free, and that's cool. If you have a housing issue, you'll, you'll have to be a member. Before you're able to um, get support uh, with your housing issue as well. Because we just don't have the capacity right now to support those who aren't members. Um, In terms of setting up a a renters union, uh, get in touch. And let's let's have a chat. I think that's the be- the best way because <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, first of all, you might just want to get a collection of people together who want to do that with you, and then and and go from there. I think it's really good. Like some people are like, I want to do the thing, but it's like, do you have buy-in from anyone? Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like like try and get a group of people together who you think would be great to to start it with. How exciting!
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, we ask this of everybody um, who we speak with, and I, I, you've kind of alluded to it already. You know, as long as there is landlordism, you guys need to organise. But when do you think, if ever, that your work will no longer be needed? Oh boy, I'll be dead. <laughs>
3: oh, really? So, last week
2: I spoke to a workers' co op, and this week I'm speaking to a housing co op, Sandford. So, Sandford was founded in the early 1970s and it's the oldest of the UK's over 680 housing cooperatives. It was purpose built as a co op from the very start and is made up of around 14 shared houses and six self contained flats. Now, each house is home to around eight to 10 tenant members. So around 120 people live in the community altogether, and they each have their own bedroom and a shared kitchen, living room, and bathroom space. So as a co-op, each tenant that lives in Sanford also plays a key part in managing the housing. So there are no middlemen and no landlords in the traditional sense. They each pay around £65 a week to live there and that includes their bills and council tax and it goes into a collective pot that is used to pay for all of the properties. So this week specifically I'm talking to John Forbes who is the chair at Sanford where he has lived and been a resident for 10 years. He is also a project manager at Cooperatives UK and he's currently working on projects focused on increasing employee and worker ownership with local authorities. He's also the person that you might have heard introduce us to co-ops last week in our episode on democratic workplaces. So I sat down with him to talk about how democracy might be applied to managing housing.
0: So Sanford Housing Co-op is a legal entity, like, like as a business or a housing provider, owns, owns the property where we live. And the 120 so odd people that live here are all members of of, of that Group of the cooperative. Um, we all pay a one pound nominal membership fee, sort of a symbolic thing to get our one pound share, but none of us have capital shares in the property. So you can't like no one owns 40% or 20% or anything different. No one, no one owns any capital share in it. So if, if you live here for 15 years and when you move out, you don't take any of that money with you. Um it's and that's kind of key to how it's set up. Um so then, within that, what you as a as a member, as an individual who's living here, then you are part of that wider group, which is which is managing the property. So you all have your stake and your say saying your ownership within the property, within the sort of management structure that we have. All of these are volunteer positions. None of these are kind of paid roles. You have a chair, the role that I've been doing for the last three years. You have a secretary. You have um, a treasurer or a finance person. Those are the three kind of roles that you have to have and then outside of that you just have multiple multiple um, volunteer roles so I was talking about the gardens earlier you have like a gardens officer a bicycles officer we have a mediation team we have a memberships team sort of dealing with the applications and everybody who's coming in we have an outreach team looking to engage with the wider community and the wider co-op network then you have practical things like people who are uh, dealing with keys and locks if people Occasionally lose their keys, or dealing with that kind of practical side of things. Maintenance team, boilers team, loan stock. We have we have something like forty officers, which and a property of one hundred and twenty people. You've got kind of all the roles that need to be covered to manage that, to look after that in a in a way that's suitable for everyone. Um, we have all of those as volunteer roles, so. So then how do, how do we kind of, how do we communicate? How do we do those things? It's, it's quite straightforward, really. We have two meetings in a month, Um, the first of which is a memberships meeting that just everybody can come to, come with any ideas, where you just discuss any ideas, any thoughts you have about what you'd like to do, um, which can be kind of, you know, it can be as basic because, like, we need to replace the handles on the windows in our kitchen or whatever. Or it can be we want to build a community centre, you know, a massive, like, million pound development or whatever we're going to start looking for funding as this is all those kind of things which you discuss um, and try and hone down into something that can be voted on, something that's a practical um, a practical proposal. Um, that will go then to the Committee of Management meeting. Again, anyone can attend this, but each house has a house rep who actually votes on behalf of the house. The, the proposal would have gone out to the houses a week or so before the meeting. The houses discuss and or just vote on a piece of paper. The house rep then takes it to the meeting to vote on. Um, so that's how the basic decision-making process works works at Sanford. That's how all decisions are done. Obviously, as I mentioned, there's 40 odd different officer roles. So there's multiple kind of pieces of work and meetings going on outside and behind those, behind that memberships meeting. You'd hope that people would come with fairly formed ideas to the memberships meeting to just kind of finalise the proposal. Um, that doesn't obviously that doesn't always happen. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's the basic operation of, of a housing cooperative and certainly how Samford runs runs things here. I think one thing one thing to be aware of in co-ops and maybe not all co ops but certainly Samford is that we're not necessarily an intentional community it's it's a it's a framework of organizing ownership of a property it's not it's not and it's not necessarily anything more wider than that a lot of smaller co-ops that are set up these days will be if it's a group of five six seven eight people obviously you can expect them to have much clearer sort of definition and you can get specific co-ops set up with more specific ideals built around them but samford doesn't pertain to have any like massively broader political statement or anything else i mean obviously it agrees in cooperative principles and it agrees each person having a vote and everything else but with 120 people it, it would be quite a challenge I think to try and define it as one explicit ideology or anything else.
2: Mm. Yeah that's actually really interesting what you've just said about not necessarily being an intentional community what drew you personally then Johnny to want to decide to live this way?
0: Um, I mean <laughs> I mean, the question would be why wouldn't you um, like it's just having having lived myself you know for like 15 odd years tra- moving around London, going through the rental thing, sometimes moving house every six months, sometimes you might manage to stay in a place for a year if you were lucky um, being massively ripped off playing, you know I remember living in Ealing something like uh, it must be growing on to 20 years ago and my rent then for a kind of a tiny, tiny one bedroom flat um, was still kind of more than twice what I paid when I moved into Samford or what people pay in Sanford today. And that was 20 years ago, like for being like just absolutely ripped off to pay someone else, for someone else to make profit off you paying your rent. It's just a terrible thing. Like it's just not a nice, it's not a nice idea. And the longer you live here, the more kind of, alien it feels that because someone at some point in their life had enough capital or what, whatever bit of resource they had to be able to own a property for then you to pay their rent basically for the next however long is just it's not a very healthy idea so there's there's a I suppose what I'm saying there is there's a financial obvious financial uh, incentive for people to live in a cooperative but then outside for that there is The security that you have from living here, I remember exactly when I moved in, kind of um, putting my bags down and that sort of feeling of freedom or of security, just really realizing that I didn't have to move out, that I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't have to consider moving somewhere else unless I chose to. Suddenly having that piece of ownership is a massive, massive change psychologically and just how secure you feel. and then, and then having a community around me, living living with a group of people is is much more beneficial, I think, for everybody's mental health and for, and for what you can achieve, and for the just, I think it's just a much more natural way to live. Before before I moved to Samford, I spent some time um, staying at uh, a similar cooperative in Brighton called Two Peers Co-op, which is at a similar-ish scale, slightly smaller than Samford, um, but. Uh, built around the same time, built around the late seventies, with a sort of cooperative ideal, and just really—that was my first time really seeing it and understanding how it can work—and just thinking to myself that I didn't—I didn't want to do anything else. Um, and equally, you know, equally, I wasn't in a position to buy buy my own place or anything like that. So, so yeah, that was why I chose to live in a co-op.
2: Yeah, you—you've mentioned some of the sort of, I guess, positives there, and and the the idea that um, if. I think for many people housing and paying for housing whether that be a mortgage or rent is one of the biggest outgoings and one of the things that um maybe is acts as one of the biggest barriers to them living more outside of capitalism and um trying to do things outside of the traditional structures so i guess when that's removed it might allow people to yeah explore some of these things further um but yeah are there any are there any sacrifices did you find that there was anything that you sort of yeah any, any chale- immediate challenges that you found to moving and living in this way from having lived differently previously?
0: I think one of the challenges which is often reported as well in kind of worker co-ops or employee-owned kind of setups is changing people's perspective over to that of um, feeling a need to engage in it and feeling that like feeling the the ownership over it but also the responsibility that comes with that so you're like great like you can do this now um but you also have to do something like it's on you now it's completely open and free so you know I definitely spent probably the first little while in Samford um not, not contributing very much to the place um but I think I think as well it can be a, for a lot of people who move in I think as I mentioned that kind of um that kind of moment of calm that sort of lifting of all the pressure that you've had in terms of having to move house every six months and living like living with insecure housing living with like what you just mentioned a huge proportion of your wages going on housing often more than half often more than two-thirds of your income going on just paying someone else's rent as we mentioned earlier um or if you're really lucky paying your own mortgage but um so yeah there's a bit of a kind of almost a decompression period where you're just getting used to the fact that you live there this the scale within Stamford, for sure the scale of 120 people living as part of one community can be a bit of a change obviously I've lived in shared houses but I think the most was probably six people before that so you're immediately into eight people plus you've got 13 other houses up and down the street um, that you're starting to engage with so that can be challenging um, living it's you know it's not a you've, everyone's got their own room but it's not a hundred percent private lifestyle so you need to have an interest in sort of being part of a community. On the flip side, you know everyone here is a very, very kind, decent people. Do you know what I mean? It's like you're left alone if you need to be left alone. Um, we're we're all living in the same environment, so everybody's very supportive uh, in that sense. Um, so no, I don't think I don't think there's huge challenges. I think maybe the challenges start to come. Um, as I mentioned before, it's not a place where you can necessarily start a family or um, it's single room, single occupancy. So it's more choosing when you want to move on for Sanford, I I think is uh, a thing for lots of people. Um, Equally, I think, yeah, the idea of going back into the private rental market after living here just seems impossible. So I think that could be a challenge for people as well.
2: You spoke a lot about contribution in that question, and I'm really glad you brought it up because it's something that I think really fascinates me about when thinking about transitioning to communal living in this way Um, and I think there's two things that sort of sit side by side there's contribution and then there's motivation and I think that one of the thing that things that always get brought up as a critique when people discuss living outside of sort of capital capitalist norms and structures is that um, when the notion of sort of I guess monetary gain or um monetary incentive is removed, people become lazy, unincentivised, they don't want to contribute to things. Um, so with Sanford, do you find that this is the case? Or how do people contribute? Can you live there and not contribute, for example? Or do you find that actually by choosing to live there, people naturally want to contribute to the community?
0: I mean, yeah, by and large, I'd say absolutely they do. Um, Sanford you know, wouldn't wouldn't function if, if people didn't, essentially. Um, we but yeah equally we don't we don't have in sanford we don't have a kind of mandatory participation um policy or baseline or anything like that multiple co-ops do um the one i mentioned in brighton earlier had sort of a minimum it it had quite a different setup but it had a minimum attendance at meetings for example that people had to do like it was i can't remember what it was once every three months or something or other but we don't we don't have any kind of mandatory participation at sanford and it is one of the central sort of debates and discussions that happens here and has since I've lived here, essentially. Um, Sanford does com- continue to work very well. And I would I would argue that most people are motivated to contribute, but as, as we discussed just now, the... Um, maybe getting in the mindset of understanding that that is what you what you need to do here it can be difficult for some people to adjust to and some people some people come here and stay here for a short amount of time don't necessarily contribute very much and then decide it's not for them and move on somewhere else but i would say by and large everybody here is contributing to Sanford. um when you mentioned removing kind of uh, being paid to do something, essentially one one way of understanding it or arguing it at Stamford is that we are multi- we're we paid to do it by the massive reduction that we pay in rent. So that's uh, that's your trade-off, you know. Like our rent is is hugely reduced, as I mentioned previously. Um, like the, the rent here for a standard room is two hundred between two hundred and seventy and two hundred and eighty pounds a month, which is all in, like so that's including all your bills and everything. And with that, you have. Um, you have access to resource and freedom on us on a freedom's maybe the wrong word but access to resource in terms of maintaining your house and things like that that you just don't have in private you don't have even the freedom to do it in private rental so i suppose your know, freedom is relevant but you might not have the resource to do it in if it's your own house so like for us you know if the boiler breaks we phone up the people who are contracted to fix our boilers. No one has to put their hand in their pocket. It goes out to the of the central pot of money that Sanford holds. Um, if we want to build this community centre, it's, it's Sanford's money. And and our, our money is quite um, – we've got a reasonable amount of money in our reserves at the moment. The flip side of that is that part of the reason potentially we don't have the money in reserves is due to the fact that um, – we're not necessarily perfect at doing some of the more kind of longer term maintenance roles that we need to do in Stamford. But I suppose going to that, my point being that you do have a arguably you have a financial and um, you have a financial incentive to do it because the time that you, you earn back from maybe not having to work as many hours or anything else is, is what gives you the, the smaller rent. So, so it's there, but it's not as tangible as saying I went to work for five hours and I got my I got paid whatever I got paid for those five hours um but yeah going back to your question which is to say um how how easy is it to motivate people (laughs) by and large people move into Stamford with a keen with a keenness to help and a keenness to contribute um it's a hugely it's a hugely empowering process to understand you have that ownership over your own housing environment and understand that you can change it for the better of everyone that lives here including yourself um some roles it could be argued to carry more weight than others. So things like the treasurer or the secretary, who or the time of the mediation work, can be quite can be massively straining, to be honest. Um, so yeah, it's, it's there's still always this is the other side of the argument, trying to get trying to get that balance and make it feel like some people aren't burning out or some people don't feel like overworked or overburdened by the responsibility on them and feel that they can step in and step out. Um, and it's it's ongoing, um, but but yeah, I think. I think, by and large, people understand that it's a you community to contribute.
2: Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting actually because it's reminded me of a previous community that we featured, an alternative community called Stars and Madden, um, in the Netherlands. Stars and stands for city or translates as city nomads, and actually, it's a lot smaller scale. I think they have maybe 10 trailers um, that they have in a field and they um, live in sort of outside of the same sort of structures that you are. And our guest, one of the guests actually spoke a lot about actually accepting laziness, accepting that people might not want to contribute and how much she's learned about having to accept that living in this sort of structure and actually the idea of individual autonomy and that it fluctuates contribution and, and seeing the fact seeing contribution and productivity as some of the things we might want to leave behind if we are Mm. moving away from Mm -hmm. capitalist structures. So that was really interesting. And another thing she spoke about a lot was um, rejection, rejecting structures. So she actually said they have an allergy to structures and they have an allergy to some of these formal meetings and stuff like that. And I think you just sort of touched there upon... um, trying to formalize things while still staying true to some of the things that you're trying to escape I guess and trying to maintain that balance between yes okay we need induction processes we need meetings but also we're trying to do things a little bit differently and get rid of some of these sort of more
0: and have traditional that freedom, yeah exactly have that freedom emotions. and have that lack of pressure on people and allow people to sort of find their find their own place in it and I've yeah I've definitely fallen on both sides of the um Debate, I suppose, at point, a different point, since I've been living here, like going through my own process of understanding what I think is the best way of arranging it, and I, I've only been here ten years, so you ask me in another 10 years, and I'll tell you what my final decision is. But um, but yeah, as I, I suppose, going back to what I said, that kind of initial kind of decompression period of finding your freedom here, finding the freedom to kind of relax and feel like you know you do have. A bit of space to not feel constantly pressurized to be working to be to be delivering something like all the time um and we definitely do have you know that's one of the flip sides of the argument of like we've got 120 people like how you know how much work would it be to try and if we were to put in something around mandatory participation, the amount of work that it would take even to measure it in the first place is like, is that a completely waste of time? And equally if we're forcing people to kind of participate, whatever that means, even, even defining participation is, is a massive debate that we've got nowhere closer to achieving. But um then do we do we have enough stuff almost to do like do we need 120 people to be working like five hours a month or whatever do you know what i mean it's just like and unless you sort of really want to get into sort of trying to quantify that you have to feel your way through it a bit more organically um and you know yeah you'll always be having voices from both sides but but yeah at the i mean at the moment we definitely feel like we we achieve very well Our, I mean, one thing, as you would expect, we went so we went with the meetings online during coronavirus and uh, during the lockdown and everything, um, and our participation like shot through the roof. Uh, partly because I assume people had less work outside in their in their normal day to day lives as well. Equally, though, the kind of accessibility of putting it online meant that you know people who didn't necessarily want to go and sit in a room with twenty people or whatever could sit in their bedrooms with a cup of tea and join the meeting. And uh, like some of our meetings got up to almost 50% of the people here which is which is unheard of.
2: Do you find that there's any sources of conflict and and how does the community sort of resolve that is if there, if there is?
0: Yeah for sure for sure there is. Um with a community of 120 people obviously you have conflicts um, and sometimes they can be resolved and sometimes they can't. Uh, so as a as a as a legal entity you know, we can we can employ people to provide goods or services or what have you you know so one of the things we employ is a housing officer this Sanford didn't have one when it started out in the in the um, in the 70s and early 80s and during a period of the 80s Sanford essentially half the buildings were squatted nobody was paying very much rent and um, it Half the half the rooms were empty. You know, it was like it was um, going more further and further into debt, and essentially looked like it wasn't necessarily going to survive. Um, some concerned members in the cooperative at that point decided to um, employ one of these housing association type services, and this is someone to just start tracking the rent and yeah again unfortunately start dealing with some of those conflicts and start dealing with the processes of if someone's not suitable for living here uh, asking them not to essentially um and going through the court process of that which is the much more kind of less enjoyable process i mean none of the process is enjoyable but going through that formal process of it that as a community we weren't necessarily doing so we have we have this person who up until now was living on site hasn't been living on site it's got an office on site kind of thing hasn't been doing that um throughout the last year due to coronavirus but has obviously still been supporting us um but so yeah so we have these various different kind of touch points in place to deal with any conflicts that you were talking about that come up and yeah just you know as you would absolutely expect for a group of 120 people those things will happen um they can be mediated and they can be resolved um or yeah unfortunately sometimes they can't and it might not be the best place for some individuals to live
2: with, with conflict and decision-making, I think applying democracy to sort of a living situation is really interesting because um, it, it makes me wonder then, is it sort of majority wins or is it more of like a rediscuss discuss and, and come to consensus or does everyone have to vote for a decision to pass? Does a certain proportion of people have to vote for a decision to pass? I guess just some a little bit of the practicalities of that would be interesting to learn.
0: It definitely is majority rules and one of the kind of criticisms that is levelled against the decision-making processes like it's a popularity contest, you know, Um, but I think that's something that you could level against kind of any form of democracy really. Um, So i mean there's two kind of different types basically there's this the the committee of management which i mentioned earlier which is house reps taking all of the votes of their houses and then come into that committee of management monthly meeting to to vote on decide on things and that's simple majority votes take it through like simple as that you know what i mean um and that's that's by and large how we make day-to-day decisions like you know are we going to replace the lighting in the i don't know in the garden somewhere kind of things like that kind of fairly straightforward things then we do have sgm special general meetings which is which might be for much bigger decisions like i mentioned earlier the decision on what the rent is and that would be simply one member one vote so then everybody can turn up and everybody can cast a vote um so that's you know the 100 120 so of us here special general meetings sgms come around the other place that they come around is Again, uh, not to focus on this too much Because it is quite a small proportion of what happens here But um, If there is decisions around evictions There might be appeal meetings and things like that And they can, and they can be run As one member, one vote type things You know, where they're quite uh, quite Big decisions um, So those are the two Those are essentially the two decision making Structures that we have in place At Stamford. that's the ways that it can go Those two
2: Would you say that living in Uh, this way sort of makes you more democratic and more engaged in politics in general because you're so used to sort of voting on things, being engaged in what's happening around you? Do you think it's given you a more um, engaged mindset in general in terms of what's going on in the world around you, engaging in politics, engaging in society, or has it had no effect? (laughs) Or is it hard to gauge that because you don't necessarily know what you'd be (laughs) like if you hadn't lived this way?
0: yeah exactly like where's where's the baseline yeah hard to say hard to say um no i'd say the way i don't know if it's inf- influenced me more on it yeah <laughs> difficult question to ask. i mean one thing as we as we've mentioned people here have a bit more of a freedom maybe to engage in that kind of thing and certainly we haven't talked very much about like what's the normal kind of uh, resident of Sanford, but it has to be someone who's involved in interested in a level of community community living by and large and that Normally, by default, will lead to people who have more of a kind of um, a societal like idea around societal responsibilities, or you know, looking to create a fairer society. Let's say, like we don't have too many absolute like ram- rampant capitalists living in here who are just out to make millions of pounds in the oil industry. Um, So, so just by default of kind of who you're living with, there's a level of engagement. We have much more volunteers, but, and again, having the freedom because you don't necessarily have to work all the time just to afford your rent here. You have the freedom to maybe go out and volunteer. You have, uh, so you have a lot more people involved in that kind of work here. So from, from the surrounds and from the environment that you're in, yeah, I would say it probably does influence you in that way. Equally it probably influences you in the sense that you have the freedom to to look into more different ways of living, but th- and then the final one for me is probably just within housing. I'd say it's made me more, more annoyed with the current housing market, I suppose, and more, more keen to promote and be supportive of alternative setups for housing. Basically, I think I think that's where it makes me more <laughs> influences me more strongly. Certainly, a way in a way that I could maybe measure. Uh, I think the other ones have probably happened to me more by default, but yeah, I think within housing, it just makes you just get really more and more annoyed with the kind of current rental market.
2: It's interesting there, you mentioned sort of quote unquote, the average um, Sanford resident. And I want to talk about that actually, um, in, in terms of the makeup of these spaces and who's um who makes them up and how people join and some of these things, because I guess one of the things that people might say is, does it become quite homogenous, the type of person that's in these communities? But I guess what I would ask you, Further to that also, is, is that a problem? Is it—is it an aim of these communities to be inclusive of different types of people or, or not?
0: Samford isn't necessarily the best uh, like litmus test for how co-ops across the UK or across the world generally operate. So I can talk a bit about what it looks like at Samford. But always with the caveat that going back to what we said about more intentional communities, there are more sort of specific co-ops that are looking to support LGBTQ communities or or different marginalized groups, whereas Samford doesn't necessarily have those policies in place, and definitely a, a kind of um, criticism that's leveled against it is that there is a level of homogen- homogeneity, homogeneity, homogenousness, um, in Samford, mm-hmm. whereby a lot of it can come in through your personal networks, through the fact that you know someone else who lives here. Um, we don't make a massive effort to promote Samford externally, simply because we already are massively oversubscribed we have a huge waiting list of people like we have a, a huge amount of people who are obviously keen to live here so it's not like we're desperate to increase um applications and i guess yeah i guess it's helpful to define that process as well because we haven't actually spoken about that so sanford has a three-stage process for people to come in so it's you write a written application which is which is read by three Three sort of random people here at the co-op. Um, from that, you go on to a um, a panel interview here, which is again three three random people from the co-op, uh, just asking you again about sort of why you want to live in a housing co-op, what your what your what your position is at the moment, all that kind of thing. Um, And then finally, from that, you get interviewed by any houses that have got an empty room. So as I mentioned earlier, 14 14 houses on the street. Um, And say there's three rooms available in three different houses, you'd be interviewed by those three different houses. So the end decision is is always down to those seven or eight people who are interviewing you in the houses. And yeah, they might have a specific idea of who they want to live with. You're living in fairly close kind of um, quarters. Sharing a lot of communal space. So there is definitely the risk that we become fairly homogenized. Um, To caveat against that, I would say that it is something that we've been aware of for the last, certainly for the last five to 10 years, I would say, and are making more conscious efforts to promote Sanford more amongst the local community and amongst those who have a higher higher need for housing essentially. So within that we spoke to Lewisham Council um, and have been trying to set up, it's still in its very early terms, but trying to set up a process where we work with what, um, what the council sort of defined as the invisible homeless. So it's people aged between 18 and 24, 25 generally. Who maybe are not living in a family home who aren't quite living on the streets but are sort of sofa surfing with friends don't necessarily have anywhere to be and we're trying to engage work out a way that we can engage with the council to um sort of fast track those people into the interview process here at samford um we're not a social housing provider this is something that is repeated again and again we're not a social housing provider um because we're not set up in that way but because we also we're just a mixed community of people which don't have the skills to be a social housing provider or the support processes or anything like that in place. Like it's not, it's not what we, the service that we deliver. We're not a service provider. We're a group of individuals that I remember of a cooperative that owns property. Like that's, that's as far as it goes. Um, Going back to the point about um, it used to be a younger person's car, again, as the kind of housing market has changed externally or equally just as people, Prefer this way of living. People certainly, you know, stay here for um, for very extended periods. People certainly stay here. I think there's one person left who was here when the co-op opened from the 70s. Um, he keeps himself to himself. I haven't spoken to him very many times, but he's he's obviously happy to still be here. And there's people who've lived here for 20, 30 plus years. Absolutely. Um, And then aside from that, there's a kind of people who live here for four or five years, kind of regular turnover of people that are constantly kind of ebbing and flying. So, yeah, you get a bit of you get a bit of mixture where it's whereas it started very much as a so-called younger person's co-op. I think definitely the kind of cross section of ages and everything else now is a lot more um, mixed.
2: So, Johnny, do you think that this way of life and this way of um, housing is sustainable or realistic on a larger scale? So that could either be a larger scale as in expanding Sanford, or that could be a larger scale as in having lots of mini Sanfords around the country. Um, And if so, do you have any ideas of how that might happen?
0: Yeah, yeah. just get rid of the Tory government, we'll be fine. No, Um, it's... Yeah, I, I, like, I 100% believe that it's massively sustainable. I think it's much more sustainable than the current housing uh, market we have. I think the barriers to it are that it can seem slightly challenging to set up, and I, th- I think arguably it is. I, I haven't actually set up a co-op myself. I moved in here once so it was very much established. So, um, But there is a lot of support out there to do it. I think it's more a question of awareness raising and, and understanding. And equi- in the UK, you are fighting a little bit against the kind of uh, – you know, Englishman's home is his castle kind of mentality, um, and against the broader idea of work hard to get enough money, buy a house, make money. You know, um, which 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 is a which is definitely a challenge in the UK. The UK, in terms of uh, how many co-ops we've got, we're at something like point 0.1 percent of housing in the UK is housing co-ops. Um, Germany. Germany is much more around 10 to 11 percent. Sweden's got 16 percent of the population living housing co-ops. It's just you need you need kind of government supporting policies in place you need a proactive political environment to support it but equally you need to just educate more and more people. New co-ops are being set up I'd like to say all the time it's not quite all the time but they are being set up regularly and there are there are definitely places that you can go to to get advice and support in doing so.
2: There's something you said there, actually, Johnny, and I completely agree, which is the whole notion of the Englishman's home being his castle. And I think having lived in other places um, in my life, in other countries and travelled quite a lot, I have seen that there is this you, maybe particularly strong notion in the UK or in England that... Um, home ownership is really important and it's something everyone must do and it's a it's an it's almost a birthright in the stage of life and um, and it seems to be a lot stronger here than elsewhere and I think that that psychology maybe is maybe presents one of the biggest barriers to this I would agree that it presents one of the biggest barriers to this becoming more widespread but Johnny you've done a really good picture overall in this interview of painting for us what it is to Live in one a community like this, how it differs from maybe what people are used to and what people expect out of housing, um, and that actually things can be done differently. And you've shown us a practical example of things being done differently, but not so outside of what people might um, feel a house or a living situation should be. So I think we've 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 um, sampled like living in trailers, which people might think is a bit further from what they <laughs> what they understand, but this I think is slightly closer, but just with different principles and trying to imp- implement some of the principles we talk about so I think it's been it's been really good to to have the opportunity to talk to you so if there are any people who are further um moving further and further away from this notion of having this castle <laughs> and want to and want to um incorporate some of the things you've spoken about into their lives whether that's starting their own co-op or whether that is um joining a co-op are there any tips that you have for people that are listening in terms of how they can they can move towards this lifestyle
0: yeah for sure um yeah and I think it's not just getting away from the idea of having their own castle maybe they're bored of paying for someone else's castle but um I think the first place to look at would be um there's a group called Radical Roots um so you can find Radical Roots online which have Plenty of guides in terms of starting a co op. So, talking about getting a group of you together, talking about how you start um, sourcing capital, loan stock to start, and like suitable banks, banks like Triodos, who can support loans for um, starting co ops. So, Radical Roots really is the best place to start to get the basic kind of guidelines. And they'll have links to countless other organisations as well. Um, Online, then there's Diggers as Dreamers. If you want to look at the sort of list of uh, established co ops that are there already, Diggers and Dreamers is a really good uh, website to start with. Um, you can look at the Confederation of Cooperative Housing for the UK, which again is just lists. There's count- countless of these lists, but then just search for, in whatever area you are, just search for housing cooperatives in that area, housing cooperatives London, housing cooperatives Birmingham, or whatever. And there'll be a kind of central online resource with a list of them and just start sending emails out and getting in touch with people. Um, and seeing what's out there there's 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 count there's a lot of support there's actually a lot of support and guidelines and people who kind of hold your hand through the process of it um it will take a little bit of time you know it does take a bit more time and effort you're not going to think that you want to live in a co-op and move into one in two weeks from now there's not like you know purple bricks or right move for co-ops unfortunately just yet but (laughs) if someone wants to set that up as well they can go ahead but um but yeah get get online and start looking into radical roots diggers and dreamers and just search for housing co-ops in your area and take it from there
2: Great. Thank you, Johnny. And I'm actually cheating because I said that's the last question, but I'm going to ask you one more that we asked to a lot of our guests, which is, do you ever think that your work in this area will be done or do you think this is sort of a lifelong mission to to change the way things are in housing?
0: I mean, it won't be done for a while. It certainly won't be done in my lifetime. No, not at all. Like, I am even mean, going against, like... Yeah, it's, it's not a capitalist approach to housing. It's not a way of making investments out of property. So I think, yeah, it's it's going to take a huge amount more work. I think to get to a level where I was happy to it, to have it like in line with maybe the Scandinavian model, just to have it in line with a... To be able to talk to someone in the street and tell them that you live in a housing cooperative and then not look at you confusingly and think that you live in a supermarket would be great. Um, just to have it kind of more <laughs> established in that way. Yeah. Um, And just have it as a viable alternative You know, if someone really wants their own house Well, I was going to say I won't argue with that But I might might argue with it But, um, you know, I don't expect that the the market will completely switch over For, for, yeah, for who knows how long But to have it, whereas anyone Anybody who wants to live in a cooperative can And can do it with, like, not too much challenge would be great, yeah Really?
2: Okay, so two more really insightful interviews from our guest, there, Mona. Um, So much that we could sort of break down, dissect and talk about a bit more. But what stood out to you this week?
1: Yeah, you know, I I think when we discussed interviewing these people, we talked about um, the way the democracy both would be applied on a more macro level, right, to actually fight within society and for our right to housing which amina covers and then on a more micro level how it just might be used to manage a space right manage a housing space and the way that we can use it to manage workplaces and so on and so that kind of you know led quite nicely into what johnny was talking about i mean yeah there's a lot i think if we almost start from the where we started, which was the human right, right? The housing being a human right. And, you know, you talked about how um, in the sort of UN definition, they speak about it as being people having the right to live in peace, security and dignity. Um, I thought it was very interesting to hear Amina you know, describe our housing system as vi- as violent, you know? I mean, as, 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 as violent, brutal, hostile, you know, all the opposite things to kind of peace and security and dignity, um, which really, I think, raises this question of, A, what do those things mean? Like, and B, in that case is, are our human rights being completely violated? Um, and even if we literally did, did have a shoebox to put our staff in our bed, are we being violated? Um and I guess kind of are those terms deliberately quite vague, you know, like mm. as in should, subjective. Very subjective, like should the Human Rights Act have written something like, Everybody's entitled to four walls and a ceiling and, you know, running water and which mean, I'm sure maybe they do as well, but what is the what is this other stuff? Uh, and how do we fight for it?
2: Yeah, there there could be some more, I guess, very, very specific guidelines about walls and ceilings and all of that. (laughs) But for me, the thing that sticks out there, and I think all three terms are vague, security, peace and dignity. But the thing that really sticks out to me is dignity. Because Mm -hmm. I think although it's subjective, I do think that there's a collective understanding of the notion of dignity. And a lot of what both of our guests spoke about was the place and power of dignity and even if we're to say um, terms like there's not enough housing, there's this, there's that, I think there's still a place for dignity in all of the ways that we treat people. So if we do have to have someone in temporary accommodation, how, how is that dignified? How can we make that process dignified? And I think a, a lot of dignity is linked to what Amina talks about a lot, which is um, consultation and understanding. So when people are un- involved in the process, I think that's where dignity comes from, because then you're making decisions over your life and you're, you're having a say rather than the dictation that tends to happen in these situations um, and the lack of control that tends to happen, which is why I think people... Um, I mean, I'm, I know there's probably a lot of different cultural things, but I think it's one of the reasons why people are so attached to home ownership in the UK is that notion of control because of the lack of control that's often associated with um, the other forms of shelter. So private rental, council housing, all of these other things tend to have notion of control taken away from them um because whenever i've lived or traveled or had friends in other countries even in europe i've seen quite a different um approach and and um ideology around housing um people seem a lot happier to like rent for example because they have more more stabilized or controlled rents there and stuff like that so i do see i think johnny even said um a man's home is his castle, and that is definitely a very, very UK um, ideology and notion of housing. And I wonder if that is linked to some of that notion of dignity and security.
1: No, definitely. I mean, I I, I grew up in in Denmark, and, and and things are changing there too. But when I was growing up there, they it was they had this. Um, they had this system of, and we don't have a word for it in the UK because we don't have it. Um, but, you know, I don't know whether maybe almost like shared ownership or something like that. But it, it is this idea that so many flats were kind of, again, very affordable, subsidized. People are kind of paying their ground rent but and they kind of have almost like a right big, you kind of do end up. It does become your flat, but you don't own it completely in the way that we perceive home ownership here in the UK. And you pay a ground rent. You pay something upfront to almost like own it cheaply. And then you pay a sort of into a collective pot that manages the building. And um, so it's like... And, and as you say, like, people were very happy with that, you know, that's the way that people would live for a lifetime and not necessarily aspire to then go and get themselves a nice villa somewhere that they own completely outright, for example. And I think that is the case in a lot of European countries, because essentially, as you say, if it's about peace, if it's about security and it's about dignity, well, that doesn't mean that doesn't say ownership in there. Do you know what I mean? It mm. just as long if, if you're secure and no one's going to come kick you out, well, then maybe the ownership factor doesn't matter. Um,
2: And And it's obviously also linked to capitalism and the notion of of what is success and what are we amassing money from and ownership and building of yeah and all of that commercialism and collecting stuff, which is linked to capitalism. But I do think when I think about it as someone who doesn't currently own their own home um, and as I get increasingly close to having the means to creeps questioning about why this is such a thing that people want to want and Mm -hmm. is it something I want and all of these things and when I look at that definition as security peace and dignity I have that right now in a place I'm renting without having to own it so it just makes me wonder what within that definition makes us so linked to the ownership um, notion of it
1: um yeah. And I thought this was, um, was really interesting. Some of the things that, you know, Johnny said, I mean, you said to Johnny, like, what made you choose to live there? And he pretty much was like, I think the question is, why wouldn't you choose it? Right. And it, so there is, it was just like, well, if you can be somewhere that's like really affordable and you have a say and you have autonomy and you have a decent space, and yes, you also have the four walls and the ceiling and the running water and all of those things intact. Why would you not, like isn't that obvious, you know? And when you talked about sort of the challenges that come with it, again, he was kind of saying, I think living in this way is much more natural for humans than not, like living in community, living around other people, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. Like that just seems more obvious than fighting that and not doing it. And I, what I actually, what really sort of stood out for me was this idea that the fact that it is a, you know, a single occupancy place. Um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that, for me, then goes into all these other ideas of the nuclear family and some, uh, some mm-hmm. other capitalist kind of structures, right? Like what the minute you get a family, you're sort of supposed to shut yourself off in your own little nucleus and your little of of society. But actually, then you would stop, would you, like living in community and you community, would just close yeah. in on yourself and raise your children in your own little tribe, right? But yeah. ideally, you'd have co-ops, I guess, which families live, live yeah. in, you know? I mean, and I remember, again, when I was a child in Copenhagen, one of my good friends from school lived in a sort of co-op, but with her mum as well, and in a place that had single people and families all in a sort of cooperative kind of housing space. So,
2: yeah, it's really interesting where individualism comes in. And mm-hmm. I think both of them spoke a lot about community, maybe in slightly different ways, but human relationships and community were a big part of both of their... Um, I wanted to say attacks, but both of their methods mm-hmm. of, of, of democracy. Um, so for Amina, she spoke a lot about collective action, mm-hmm. um, like as like a really powerful way of fighting back against the systems. And whether that was like putting together money or physical presence, like pro- in protest or petitions and stuff like that, there was something about like coming together as community. And then I guess for Johnny, that was more, even if we have different, mindsets and different reasons for being here specifically we all have the shared goal of um making shelter affordable making shelter safe making shelter secure and and making sure we can all access it so i guess yeah there is that notion of sort of community and collection collective action um
1: but i think one again something that really struck me about um what johnny said and i and i think this is actually quite an important distinction for people to understand when he said we're not necessarily an intentional community like kind of meaning that you know you might live here and suit yourself and mind your own business and maybe it's not like written into the law of the place that if you live here you have to come and cook with everybody else like every night or whatever right and i think a lot of the time when people again maybe from a more mainstream or capitalist mindset think about these types of living places they just think of it as all this fluffy hippie stuff and i don't want to sit around a bonfire holding hands with people every night but actually what even he was saying is no 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 like it's actually not about those things it's actually just about a lot of people recognizing together that the right to housing you know to decent housing let's call it peaceful secure you know dignified housing is crucial and Actually, that's what we're here for, like, collectively. And then we might have quite a lot of different interests, different lifestyles, Mm. different things that we're doing. And so I do feel sometimes, like, things like co-ops or whatever might almost get again, a bit mocked and poo-pooed and like, put, a oh, you know, it's just like a really fluffy hippie thing. It's actually not a fluffy hippie thing. Like, you know, they run their own finances, you know, they get together and, and work out repairs, you know, they, they have to manage their own building. They have to understand about economics and about their lease and about their mortgage. And so it's not fluffy and hippie at all. It's super practical. But again, it's the power of what you can achieve practically if you do it collectively, collectively as Amina was yeah, also exactly. saying.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting because it, I guess it just speaks to what is community um, because I would still argue that that is community because there's still the shared goal and you're coming together to achieve it. And yeah, community doesn't necessarily have to mean completely shared mm-hmm. ideology, whatever. But if there's something binding you together and you're coming together to do it, then, yeah, I think that's one of the big takeaways that I got from both of them is the power of collectivity. Um and again, that's a perfect antidote to the principles of capitalism, isn't it? Which teaches us individualism um, and teaches us that, yeah, there's more power in being an individual and striving to do things on your own and do etc. et cetera, so.
1: Well, I think in terms of anybody um, listening, um, so, you know, de- democracy is kind of what's led us here. And again, that is a, a power that we All have. Um, And it is, you know, we, as much as again, our democratic rights are rapidly shrinking, we do have them. And I really want this episode to remind people that we have them. And I think Amina's interview is so powerful in terms of like showing us recent present kind of like success stories of what they have achieved and actually shows us that, you know, the treatment we might assume we we can receive from landlords is not acceptable and it can be changed. And this idea that the market drives everything is also an illusion. So, you know, there is, there is no, we don't have any kind of like rent controls, you know, in the UK it's like, you know, a landlord can set a rent at whatever price they want and then it's just the market that drives it. It's the supply and demand that drives it. But actually that isn't a science, you know. You can fight that, and that can change. So, um, I mean, Amina, yeah. Because one of the the interesting things that she said was that actually the majority
2: of the things that we actually fight, we win. Mm-hmm. It's just getting people to that place where they feel ready to fight and gathering that momentum behind the fight. Because in the majority of cases, or all the cases, we're on the right side of the law. And actually, as soon as you actually say something, they're like, "You're right. Um, yeah, we'll change this." But it's just getting to that point where people feel empowered to fight and they they realize that this is something they can do and then getting that collective action behind it. So, yeah.
1: So we're gonna, I mean, we're obviously gonna link you to London Renters' Union here. And Amina does talk about how, um, obviously this is the London Renters' Union, but there are Renters' Unions in many, many different cities. And I think, you know, she even kind of references what you might do if you want to set a renters union up of your own in your own city. Um, Amina mentions a lot of other groups that fight for sort of in a similar way for similar causes that we will also link you to um johnny obviously works for co-ops uk (laughs) um and they are an organization to check out in terms of guidance on on co-ops um and again i mean one of the you know real uh, we are very aware that we're highlighting this great way to live even though there are very very few co-ops around so again I, i There is something here around maybe looking at what it takes to set up a co-op rather than desperately trying to be on waiting lists to get into co-ops that already exist. But just to see here an example of one that exists again right now, right here in London and it works. So um, collective action, again, also applies to getting it off the ground and believing that that can be possible. And the more people that aim to live in these ways, the more possible these things will become.
2: Yeah, no, I think I think I think. I think both guests gave us, um, again, it's going back to that micro and macro. They gave us things that we can do right now, no matter what our situation is, whether that's asking our landlords for for more rights, um, taking a little bit co- more control over our current situation, or like you say, setting up something completely new. I think our guests gave us loads of tools for that. So we'll put those both in the description and in our articles that you can find on our website, untelevised.co.uk. And I think, yeah, the one thing that, I would want to leave people with this week is sort of the idea again reemphasizing that this is you know our human rights and that shelter is not a commodity land is not a commodity um it's our rights um and I think both guests reaffirmed for me the notion of thriving rather than just surviving and shelter being such an important part of being able to move into that space of you know Something that we've we've lost, I think, in current society, the notion that we just deserve to um, have the basics so that we can build a life where we're thriving, rather than focusing so much on just having survival
1: no absolutely and I think this really speaks back actually even to our food episode right food is another basic human right and that was again something that people dignity was mentioned a lot around food as well it's not just about having something that lines your stomach um it's not just about survival um it's about health and well-being and community and all these things so again there are themes here that if you're interested in you know you could check out our food episode definitely our capitalism episode like puts a lot of this in context and and actually as gaz said in our workers rights episode he spoke a lot about again the power of unionizing of realizing how much more powerful you are collectively and i think amina massively spoke to that so again i would check out all of those if if anything in this episode has kind of spoken to you and then as always we'd love to hear from you like do you live in yet another type of innovative housing that we don't know about um do you live in a you know ha- have you found good and bad practices in terms of you know democratic ways of running housing um have you set housing up from scratch um, Um, we would really love to hear from anybody who again has genuine solutions and alternatives to our current housing crisis
2: yeah definitely there's so many ways you can get in touch we're on instagram and twitter at untelevised underscore tv we've got an email that you can email us talk to untelevised at gmail.com and the two is the digit two rather than t o and again we've got a website untelevised.co.uk where you can see all of our content you can read listen watch um, submit stuff there's endless possibilities on there so yeah please do get in touch it's one of our favorite parts of doing this hearing from you and all of the interesting and innovative things that you're all doing as well great take care guys
1: see you next time call me a dreamer
0: idealistic believer put my head in a cloud i don't want to calm down but my feet I'm planning on starting the ground. Oh. Or my ground. Oh. My ground is a cloud.